Hey, y'all, just a quick heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is eight to 10 years old. Now, these episodes were intended to be evergreen, and I still believe there's a lot of good information in these early episodes, but I do want to let you know that some of my ideas have evolved over time. Times have changed since we made these episodes, and ultimately, I'd like to think I've grown a lot as an artist and a human and that these don't necessarily represent my best work or the best of the podcast. If you're new around here, I suggest starting with the most recent episode or at least go back to around 300 and move forward from there. Enjoy the episode. What would blow my mind? And when I approach the problem that way and I taste the stuff that I'm making before it goes out, the end product is so much better. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. This show is about commercial art, finding the balance between thriving financially and being creatively fulfilled, making money and making art. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. I mean, (laughs) Andy J. Miller. Illustration Age is our proud syndicate. You can find this show at illustrationage.com slash creative pep talk on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you so much for all your iTunes reviews. If you haven't reviewed the show and you're a major, major fan of the podcast, nothing is more helpful than logging into iTunes clicking the reviews, clicking rate this show, and giving us a review. That massively helps the show grow, and I read all of them, and I really, really appreciate it. If you want to support this show financially, go to patreon.com slash Talk, and you can give a dollar a show. Those things add up. It's definitely created a buffer so that this thing's not a financial burden or a time burden for us. Thank you so much for doing that. I see every one of you. I super appreciate it. Now, let's get to the show. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. 
got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. I don't know where it started. I don't know why it happened. Uh, But somewhere along the way, I became a bit of a snob when it comes to eating out. And when I say that, I mean that in the kind of (laughs) Midwestern sense of, you know, I didn't come from a super cultured background. Um, Not a snob in in the sense that I eat at fancy restaurants. I definitely mostly do not um but just in the sense that when i go eat out i'd like there to be a certain level of cleanliness and uh back in the day when i was younger in my teenage years early 20s that never really seemed to matter to me i could go to the you know dingiest dive and not bat an eye but somewhere along the way i don't know if it's one too many food poisonings or whatever but at some point I got a little bit of a weak stomach if I'm sat in a restaurant and I'm just not feeling sure. And I think I kind of figured out what the benchmark for me is. And that's if you ask your server uh, what they recommend and they give you the sense that they don't eat at this restaurant, you know that's a major red flag. They're not eating what they're serving. And that's, I just don't like it. So sometimes I find myself sat there in a restaurant looking around thinking, do these people that work here eat here? And if not, why would I? And if not, why don't they? And that question just becomes uh, kind of the, the litmus test for whether I'm up for being in that restaurant. Now, it might go back to kind of my serious passion for Gordon Ramsay TV programs. I really enjoy most of his shows. My favorite was the British version of Kitchen Nightmares. I loved that. We watched all those. And uh, one of the things that you're going to hear Gordon say many times, and you know it's a red flag, is when he asked the chef, did you taste this? before you sent it out. And as soon as you know that, you know it is a loaded question. He's about to flip out on this guy because he knows that the 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 chef did not taste the dish before it went out. And if you know Gordon Ramsay, you know that is a serious offense. You taste the dish before it goes out. You've got to taste what you're cooking. You've got to you've got to be 
um, the palate. You gotta you gotta check it out first before it goes out. And actually, any good chef knows you need to be tasting it all along the way and make sure that everything's there, everything's right, that it tastes good. Because you know, I'm not that picky of an eater. I don't like mushrooms. I and I've tried. Believe me, I've tried them every which way. I want to like mushrooms. I like the idea of them. I like the way mushrooms look out there in the field. They look so magical. But no, I don't like the way that they taste. I can't. They make me gag actually. And that means that it would be incredibly difficult for me to serve you a delicious mushroom dish because I don't know what a good mushroom is supposed to taste like. So over the past couple weeks, I started working on this mural for my kids' playroom, and uh, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And it wasn't really overthought. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't take ages or anything. Um, but I was just kind of really pleased with the outcome. Uh, it's just kind of a big floral, foresty kind of colorful explosion uh, on the wall, and I really like it. And I started thinking about why I really liked it, because, you know, the age-old thing of an artist who's not super into their own work, that kind of question, I thought, what's different about this? And I realized that when I started that project, I really thought of myself and my family as the client, like, I thought about what would I really love in this room? Not like the concept of a mural, not the idea of like, you know, what would make a good mural or what is a good mural? What does it mean to make a good mural? You know, these abstract concepts of what, what are good and what are bad and what's unique and what's new and what's fresh and all of that jazz. Instead of thinking through all of those things, maybe places where my brain often go, I thought, what would I like to see on this wall every single day? What would make this room look better to me? Because often murals really ruin a room, in my opinion, just because I I feel like they can be really overbearing. Um, And so I thought about how I felt the composition should be, what I thought the uh, content should be of the mural, the colors, what it should feel like, um, you know, and I came up with this kind of very decorative modern vibe and I was super into it. And I thought, what's different about this process than what I usually go through on some client work or, or personal work? And I realized that often that I'm designing or illustrating to this abstract notion of a person, some some person that exists out there who I don't really know, who's decided what's good and what's bad. And I'm designing to these weird constraints, and it's like I'm trying to make a crazy mushroom feast when I don't have a taste for mushroom, right? And so, so much of my work, I, I can see how I'm designing to these abstract qualities of what makes good art and what makes bad art, rather than tasting it myself. And I think that there's this arrogance that comes from trying to design to someone else's taste. And obviously, there are situations where you need to, you're, where you're not the 
uh, audience, right? But I do think that you've got to have a taste for the thing. You've got to have a taste for what you're serving. And for me, it's such a clarifying question. Like when I get an editorial illustration job through not thinking, what do they want to see from me? Like what does a good editorial illustrator do? Thinking if I open this magazine, what would blow my mind? And when I approach the problem that way and I taste the stuff that I'm making before it goes out, the end product is so much better. Today, we're going to talk about tasting what you make, being into the thing that you're making and how that can make a much more creatively fulfilling portfolio for you. first thing I want to talk about is this idea of self-aware, not self-conscious. There came some point in my art career where I decided that I was going to really embrace all of my guilty pleasures. And actually, I know there's a lot of opinions. Like you might either think that you might either be on the side of the fact that there are guilty pleasures or you might hate the idea of a guilty pleasure like you should never be self-conscious about things you get pleasure from wherever you are on the mark i think there's some interesting things here that you can kind of reset your compass uh to the idea of a guilty pleasure uh is that something hits you on a visceral level but you know intuitively or consciously you know that there are things about this that are not fantastic. They're not of the highest credibility. You can critique it and you know that it's not quote unquote good, right? And yet there's some part of you that it speaks to. And I think, you know, I see this with students and I see them talking about things in their past, things that got them into art, and then somewhere along the way, someone convinced them that those things were not worthy. Those things were not good art. And they made them. They made these conscious decisions to distance themselves from these things. Now, you, if you listen to the podcast, you know I'm a big believer in getting more and more self-aware, diving really, really deep into your subconscious, your DNA, you know, the makeup of who you are on a cellular level, and then also who you are experiential. So how your experiences have defined who you are, um, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, all that stuff. I'm a big believer in all of those things. And I think it can be really powerful for your art, right? But I think one of the problems is, is when you become so familiar with who you are, and you also understand, you know, the, the deeper you go into your field, the more critical thinking you're going to approach everything with. And you're going to realize that a lot of who you are is quite uncool or not so-called good, right? And I think that can lead you to distance yourself from your authentic uh, work. You can become self-conscious instead of self-aware. And I think that there are some really interesting approaches that you can take to this. So if we go back to the food metaphor, the chef metaphor, 
One of the things that I see happen often that really, really works is you have these chefs, like in MasterChef, that are really into this rustic food. Let's say it's like Cajun food, like Creole or you know Mexican food, but we're talking kind of like the everyday people's food, nothing fancy. And one of the things that happens is if you bring a dish up like that to Gordon, he's going he's gonna to say, get out of here. This thing is not a chef dish. But when those people take those so-called guilty pleasures and they, they combine, you know, they don't, they don't say, look, it's good food because I like it on a visceral level. And they also don't say, look, it's bad food because critically it's very unsophisticated. They take that guilty pleasure and they do what they call elevating the dish. They take their favorite old dish that they had growing up and then they elevate it by taking that critical mind to it and thinking, how do I take this dish and I make it a chef dish? How do I elevate it to the next level? And I think one of the things you've got to do is you've got to ask yourself, what hits me on a visceral level without judging it? You know, go collect things that really, really speak to you You know, when I first got Spotify or when Spotify first started being a social platform where you could see what each other were listening to, uh, that's right when I started revisiting Boys to Men. I started listening to Boys to Men like crazy. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm actually embarrassed that when I first started revisiting it, that I was kind of embarrassed. So I'm embarrassed that I was embarrassed because... There, there came a time, I don't know when it was, that I started to just embrace my guilty pleasures. I remember back in the day, I met my friend Matt Langworthy in middle school. And the first day that I met him, I met him at a party. Uh, he ended up becoming my best friend. He was an unabashed sync fan. He was a big football player, really funny, charismatic dude, and everybody loved him. But he also was this unabashed, in sync, massive fan of the boy band in sync. And I remember thinking, this authenticity, this is what cool actually is. Like the 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 confidence to be who you really are without apology, knowing that lots of people are gonna think this is uncool. That's what is that's really compelling. And so somewhere along the way, I just embraced all of my guilty pleasures. And I've tried to figure out in my own illustration the things that maybe I really like that are maybe not so-called good. I try to take those influences and how do I take that critical mind, the things I know about what makes good art, and elevate these dishes. Next, I want to talk about people-pleasing. One of the things that you're going to see over and over if you watch these Gordon Ramsay programs is this hate that he has for these giant menus, you know, where everything is on the menu. They've got pasta and pizza and burgers and chicken and 
Asian food and Indian food and, you know, everything on the menu. And he just gets so angry and, like, usually ends up throwing the menu at the chef. Uh, and, and it comes back to this idea is you can't please everybody. You can't please. If you please everybody, you will please no one. If everybody kind of likes it, no one's going to love it. And if they don't love it, they're not going to come back. But if, if some people hate it, some people will probably love it, right? And I think one of the things that we get into, we think that we have to please everybody with our work. And we get so afraid of you know, making something that someone's going to hate, Knowing, putting something out that we know someone is going to detest. And I think for me, the biggest example of this for me was the podcast. I knew for a fact that some people just don't like the idea that someone out there is trying to help other people grow. That just makes them angry or they think that people can't grow or, you know, you can't build artists. They're they're just they're born that way, or you can't get better. You have to do it on your own. You either have it or you don't, or all of that stuff. There are people out there that I knew for a fact, even people that I consider to be friends online that would not like this thing that I'm doing or hate it, and I knew it. But I also knew that there would be people that would get something from it where it would really, really resonate with them because I knew that it was my taste. It was the thing that I wished had already existed, especially for myself five years ago. This is the resource. This podcast is the ultimate tasting what you make. I wished this thing exist, so I just made it, right? But I knew for a fact that there were going to be people that were going to be massively put off by this whole idea. And I think instead of running the other way, you should dive deep into those things. And I think... One of the ways that you really need to evaluate your own work is where are the places where I'm trying to please some other person, but it, it's not doing it for me. Or I'm trying to, you know, do be everything to everybody, and it's really, really not working. I think one of the things that happens there when you're afraid to, to miss any opportunity Sometimes your strengths, your awesome stuff set next to that junky stuff makes your strengths look terrible. And the way I always look at this is you don't go to a diamond jeweler and see mood rings, right? Because they devalue the diamonds. You can't sell mood rings next to diamonds. And so what are the things that you're trying to pass off because you're afraid to miss an opportunity or you, you know, you're trying to do the catch-all, you've got the giant menu, what are the pages from the menu that you need to tear out? Because they're making all of your other goods look terrible. Another common theme in these restaurant shows, you'll get these chefs who are going wild all over the place with the garnishes. They got the craziest looking plates in the world. Then Gordon goes and tastes them and they taste absolutely dog barf. And, they, and, and he gets so angry like, did you forget that food 
was about eating like it's supposed to taste good. Like it doesn't like you're getting so far away from the point. And so the last thing I want to talk about is don't forget the heart of what you're doing. Don't forget what it's really all about. Now, everybody's a mixture. There's a spectrum here, but usually for artists, they either fall on the thinking spectrum or the feeling side. And for me, I'm all about the feeling. I like the emotion of art. I like the the way th- you know that art feels. But a lot of people are on the other side where they they like clever art. They like witty art. They like pithy, you know, art and and that's what does it for them. You know, but don't forget the reason why you started this because I'm guessing on some visceral cellular level art spoke to you and that and it did something to you. Maybe it made you feel a little less alone. Maybe it explained something to you. Maybe it helped you see the world differently. But don't forget the heart of what all of this is about. And you're going to find all these things that are going to try to distract you from the real purpose. You're going to find all these you know, qualifiers and critiques and critical thinking and what's good and what's bad. And, and all of a sudden, you don't know why you're making this stuff anymore. You know, one of these Things that I always go back to, Lisa Hannawalt is an illustrator. She was on the Your Dreams, My Nightmares podcast with Sam Weber. And I always think about this. She says that often when she first started getting these editorial illustration jobs, she would be thinking, what would a good editorial illustrator make? And she would start working and she would just absolutely hate the stuff that she was making. And then she would somehow realize they're asking me to do this because they wanted me to do it my way. And actually, that's a theme that I've heard from many illustrators that have said that they get into this mindset. When someone asks you to do something, you instantly think, what do they want from me? And then your insecurities say, it must be something that I can't produce. It must be something that is something that someone else could do better. But if they came to you, they want what you do. They want your perspective. And so what I've started doing that's really, really helped me is let go of the fear. When someone comes to me, no matter what the job, it doesn't matter if it's Google or the person, the kid's uh, toy shop down the street, it doesn't matter. I think, what? What would I be excited about putting on the page? If this is a magazine, if I open that magazine, what would I be super blown away by? And not worry that what if what if I send it over and they're like, Ugh, that is not what we're into at all. And just don't, don't worry about it. Because every job, every single one does not have to go perfectly. And at the end of the day, if it's not the right fit in the long term, I don't want that situation anyway. You know, I have a a friend, Andrew Nyer. He's an illustrator, product designer, artist. Uh, He's fantastic. Go check out his work, andrewnyer.com. He makes these amazing lights and products. Anyway, somewhere along the way, he had created this uh, text message notification sound for his phone, and it was... uh, kind of, uh, I'm not going to explicitly say what it was, but it was something that some people could have found offensive or uh, uh, off-putting. And I remember saying, man, what if that goes off in the middle of a meeting? And he was like, if that offends the people in the meeting, those are not the people I want to work with. 
And that was just such a clarifying moment. Like there's some part of you that got, has to get to this place. Like when you get good enough to actually start getting work, you've got to get to this place that says, if I put something on the page and I'm stoked out of my mind about it and the other people hate it, this is not the working relationship that you're interested in. Because the good stuff happens when they're coming to you for what you do well. And for me, getting all worked up about, oh, what do they want to see? What do they want from me? Like, what, what, what would a good illustrator do? Like, no, don't get worked up on any of that stuff. I think going back to tasting your own work and being satisfied is really the best indicator you have. And that's why there's all of this uh, talk in writing about writing what you know. Because you can't really write what you don't know. And anytime you start to try to write to some perspective that you don't fully understand, you're talking down to that person. You're condescending them because you're saying, oh, I can see what your perspective is from up here. And so for me, this clarifying thing in my work recently has been when I get a job, instead of worrying about what they want from me, I'm worried about what do I want this thing to look like? What do I want to see? And that, all of a sudden, I'm making stuff that I'm way more interested in. When I created, created that mural and I was the client, and the only thing that mattered was that my family was super stoked on the end product, all of a sudden, all of that garbage instantly just fluttered away. I recently saw a quote by Saul Bass on Twitter. I, I can't remember who tweeted it, but that said that often when the idea hits you, it seems too simple at first. And I think when you get this work and you have these outside constraints and people are asking you for things, you know, the thing that you want to do might seem uh, too obvious or a good artist wouldn't have possibly come up with that. It's got to be crazier than that. It's got to have all the critical thinking and all that jazz. But for me, when I'm sat there in front of this blank wall and I think, what do I want to see on it? All of a sudden, things get crystal clear and I'm finding that creative fulfillment that I'm looking for. So when you get something through and you got a job and someone's asking you to do something and you feel all that anxiety of, I'm not good enough and I don't know what to do and uh, you know I'm, I, uh, what I want to do is probably stupid, don't be self-conscious. Take the self-awareness to step back and say, all right, if I want to do something that's maybe a little bit of a guilty pleasure, how do I elevate it? How do I make it good? You know, don't disconnect yourself from critical thinking altogether. So I want to end with a little disclaimer because uh, for all you contrarians out there that listen to this podcast to poke holes in these ideas, uh, I just want to speak to you, I guess for the haters uh, out there, I do think there's a time and place when you need to try something that you really don't know is going to work. You know, there's a time and place when you're in the kitchen making some experimental dishes that you don't have to put on the menu. And you do need to taste them. And you do think that they need, you need to think that they taste good. But yes, I agree. There are times when you need to make some stuff that doesn't go right. Otherwise, you're not going to be pushing yourself and eventually it's going to get stale and old and boring. I totally agree with that. 
but it doesn't mean that you put it in your portfolio. It doesn't mean that you, uh, if you're not sure how it tastes, you don't put it on the menu, right? So why is this so important? Why is it so important to taste the food before it goes out? You know, the first reason why I think that it's really, really important is that if you're making a bunch of stuff that you really hate, it's not going to be creatively fulfilling. You know, I think there's this idea that's perpetuated in the arts that says every artist hates their work. And I would just say, at least for me, that I'm way more creatively fulfilled when I'm working on stuff that I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I always have complaints and, you know, after a few years pass, I can see, you know, I can see some things that I don't really like about what I'm doing and, and, but, but often the good stuff, the stuff I was really into at the time, I can still see the merit even years later. And I found that I'm most creatively fulfilled when I'm making the work that tastes good to me. The second reason I think that this is infinitely important is that if you don't know that it tastes good, like you, most of the time you're going to be designing to this abstract idea of a person or an abstract idea of what good is, and often the work will not be good because you are the only real litmus test that you can put your own work through. And if you're not sure if it's good, like it's probably not. Your perspective is the only one that you have, and it's the only real critical thought you can rely on. Yes, you can get feedback from other people, but at the end of the day, the best test to put the work through is whether it does something for you. And so I think in order to be creatively fulfilled and to go out there and make your best work, you've got to start identifying what are the things, you know, in my lizard brain, my fearful brain, you know, all the voices in my head, what are the things that distract me from making the work that I think is good? You know, for me, one of the things that constantly pecks at me is, is it original? Is it original? And I think Paul Rand, the great uh, mid-century designer, he must have had the same little voice in his head because he was quoted as saying, don't worry about making it original, just worry about making it good. And although I definitely respect and, and believe that it's important to shoot for originality in your work and originality in your, in your voice, I do think that those things, those things that are meant for good can sometimes be the biggest stumbling blocks. And so if you find yourself faced against these things that are pecking at you constantly and they're constantly making it so that you can't enjoy the work you're doing, there comes a time where you're going to have to say, look, I, I acknowledge you, I see you there, but I'm going to have to set you aside while I make some stuff, while I get some stuff done that I'm excited about. And so identify those things, identify those stumbling blocks and get back to the heart of this thing. Get back to the work that you're pumped about. And for me, one of the things that helps is revisit your inspiration. I do it all the time. Revisit the things that get you excited about making the work that you want to make. guys so much for listening. I hope this episode helps you find clarity and strategy for your creative career. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to our proud syndicate Illustration Age. Thank you to the Free Music Archive and the band Aninon for their song Cosmic Slop. 
Thank you guys so much for all of your reviews and Patreon backing and all that good stuff. Thank you for tweeting about the show, telling your friends about the show, the excitement about the show. It means so much to me. It really, really does. Thank you guys so much. You guys keep me going. Now, don't forget to do what it takes for you to keep going. You've got to stay pepped up. For me, staying motivated and dedicated to this thing is what keeps me disciplined in the long run. So do whatever it takes to stay pepped up.